I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of In AI We Trust. Today, it is our great pleasure to have on Dr. Andrew Ng, a globally recognized leader in the field of artificial intelligence. He is the founder of DeepLearning.ai, an education technology company dedicated to empowering the global workforce for an AI-powered future. He is founder and CEO of Landing AI, where his focus on cutting-edge software has transformed automated inspection processes in industrial automation and manufacturing. In addition to his entrepreneurial pursuits, Dr. Ng serves as general partner at AI Fund, a prominent venture studio collaborating with entrepreneurs to expedite company development and enhance their probability of success. He is the chairman and co-founder of Coursera, an industry-leading platform facilitating online courses, certifications, and degrees in collaboration with universities and organizations. He also serves as adjunct professor at Stanford University's Computer Science Department and previously was chief scientist at Baidu, where he led the company's approximately 1,300-person AI group. He was also the founding lead at Google Brain. And for all of those reasons, and because we just love hearing from him, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks, Sarah. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So you've spent your entire career working in the field of computer science and artificial intelligence, something that most people are only waking up to now, but you've given it so much thought over decades now. And I'm curious, how have you seen this space change over the course of your career? And how is responsible AI fitting into your perception of artificial intelligence and its development? I think that AI over the last, you know, way too many years I've been working on it. it. feels like it's just been getting better every single year. About 10 years ago, there was a deep learning revolution and AI became really good at labeling things, labeling what ads someone may click on, labeling an x-ray with medical diagnosis, labeling where the cars around your car to help with driver assistance. So that revolution creates a lot of value. And now with the generative AI revolution, things like ChatGPT and Bard and Bain Chat, with yet another revolutionary set of AI tools that lets us do even more with AI. And one of the exciting things and tricky things about AI is, is a general purpose technology, like electricity, you know, it's good for many different things. In fact, if I ask, what is electricity good for? It's almost hard to answer that because it's useful for so many things. And AI is like that too. And one of the challenges that arises is because of its very broad impact, it has huge positive impact all around the world, all around the economy. But in all of the different use cases, we're also maybe a little bit slower than we wish sometimes, thinking through how to make sure we're responsible in how do we build medical devices versus self-driving cars versus underwriting systems. And so I think the work to think through what is responsible AI, both in the abstract way, as well as in all these concrete scenarios has been an important part of what many people are doing as well. And that's partly why I appreciate the work of Equal AI so much to, be a leader to help governments and corporations think through how they can roll AI responsibly in their own organizations. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your support, your kind words very much. And you mentioned how in the last year we've entered a new generation of AI, a new era where we've really 
had a broader audience exposed to the possibility of AI innovation in a way that you probably saw coming, but others just didn't understand the possibilities and probably are still only beginning to understand what those possibilities will look like. So what do you see as some of the greatest opportunities for generative AI? Uh, and in particular, so much of the focus has been on these large tech companies, Google, OpenAI, Microsoft, Anthropic, but for other businesses, where do you see some of the greatest opportunities? So unlike early ways of AI innovation, generative AI is transforming knowledge work. Whereas the older ways of AI, it tended to impact lower wage repetitive work more. This way for generative AI, studies by economists are showing, affects frankly higher wage workers' work or more. And with generative AI being another general purpose technology, I see tons of exciting applications to be built. It is true, as you say, that a lot of media attention is on the technology layer, what OpenAI and Google and Microsoft and AWS and so on are doing. And with most ways of tech innovation, the media tends to talk about the technology or the infrastructure layer, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that. But I find that almost by definition, for the technology providers to be successful, the applications built on top of the technology, they had better be even more successful because, you know, frankly, we need them to generate even more revenue so they can afford to pay these technology companies that we hear so much about. So I see tons of companies building on the technology to improve customer operations, your know, customer support, or uh, sales operations, or many flavors of customer service chatbots, or to summarize internal corporate documents. And I'm seeing so many businesses in pretty much all sectors, from financial services, to healthcare, to industrial automation, to on and on and on, education, really many different sectors are building on top of these tools to identify concrete applications, which is both hard and exciting. You know, take healthcare. It's actually not that easy. How do we use AI in healthcare? That often takes AI experts working with healthcare experts to go and figure out and then to build the concrete use cases. But when we do that, it, I, I think there are just a lot of very valuable things to be done all around the economy. Well, look forward to digging into that further. But the other reason why I love talking to you, in addition to all of the great insight you shed on AI and its future, is your deep thought on regulations. You have a unique ability to understand both the AI and what is under the hood, what its possibilities are, what it takes to make AI good, but you also understand what makes good regulations that are needed to support the development of AI in a responsible and safe way. And I know you've been working with governments and lawmakers across the globe in order to support your interest in this work. For instance, you testified at Schumer's AI Insight Forum in the Senate in the fall. Can you tell us what are you seeing in DC? How is it similar or different to the approaches you're seeing in the other government or policymakers you're speaking with? And if they were all taking your advice, what do you really want them to do most importantly at this moment to make sure that AI is developed in the way that you think it should be. Yeah, I suspect you're giving me too much credit. And I think a lot of my thinking about regulations has been shaped by the conversations that, that I've been privileged to, to have with you to learn from you as well. And I feel like we need good regulation on AI to protect citizens and also unleash the technology to benefit people. But I'm very concerned about what's happening in DC as well as in the European Union. There's a lot of I think unwarranted 
fear about AI, you know, maybe AI taking over and I don't know, evil killer robots killing us off all for AI becoming a competitive species. But I feel like a lot of these fears are in the realm of almost speculative science fiction. And it's been interesting reading about the massive dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars by some accounts as reported in the political and other venues that has been going to stoking this AI fear that I think is largely unnecessary. AI is a human artifact. I am not worried about us losing control of it. And I think that some of these specters of fears have been really distracting government from thinking about what are the real problems of AI, such as bias, discrimination, unfairness, also inaccurate results. When the self-driving car makes a mistake, that has led already to fatalities. So I feel like I would love to see regulation on applications. Because AI is a general purpose technology, it's useful for so many different things. And if we think about self-driving cars, we can think about what outcomes we do and do not want, and let's regulate against that. Or medical devices, you know, well, we want medical devices to be safe, especially if it affects patient care. So let's think about what would be responsible AI in the medical context or underwriting software to decide whether or not to give a loan. We want that not to be biased. So when you think talk about concrete applications, we can think about what outcomes we do want and do not want, and I think pass thoughtful regulations. The mistake that many legislators are making is to let this generalized fear cause them to pass regulations on this raw technology rather than on the applications. And unfortunately, I think some of the proposals being contemplated, it would just stifle innovation because we throw out regulatory hurdles against the on, on the development of the technology. You slow down the technology development without actually making it safer, and that will slow down the benefits we could be bringing to so many people on using AI for healthcare and education and financial services and so many other things. So, and I've been concerned about um, lobbyists as well, funded by reportedly maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even more, I'm not sure, that is having a very stifling effect on startups. And I feel like the regulatory capture of regulations to favor incumbents is a real risk we face here in the United States. And I really want to dig down deeper on how you think that balance should look, how we strike it better than, than you think we're doing it at the moment. But before we do that, you know, I think there's something in your testimony I haven't seen before. Everyone can find it online and we'll post it with this link where you really drill down on the likelihood of some of the risks to transpire. You gave actual percentage chances of different type of road actor activity or wiping out humanity. You defined some of the top risks that are being debated and gave an odds of them coming to fruition. I thought this was really novel. It was very thoughtful because you you just in numbers in black and white reframed the conversation. And I was hoping you could share with our listeners a little more about that conversation. What were you getting at there? What what do you think those numbers demonstrated and how do you hope lawmakers would focus their efforts accordingly if they listen to your numbers and your argument? Yeah, so we'll, we'll see if I end up getting into trouble for proposing that specific calculation. But in the written testimony that I submitted to the Schumer's AI Insight Forum, I was putting forward this idea that a lot of discussions about AI risks are very vague. You know, a lot of them seem to boil down to me to, it could happen 
and you can't prove that AI won't ever wipe out humanity or cause a bioterror attack or something. And I, it's been frustrating to me and many others working in AI that we can't prove or disprove a negative. So I can't prove that AI won't wipe humanity out anymore that I can prove that space aliens won't discover planet Earth because of all these radio waves we're emitting and come to planet Earth in their UFOs and wipe us all out. I think we got the new headline for the podcast. <laughs> UFOs, yeah. yeah. And so I feel like when we talk about risks, it's helpful to be concrete about the risks rather than vague statements about you can never predict what AI will do, so it could wipe us out and you can't disprove it. I find that not helpful. But um, after speaking with some people that have been raising the alarm, I think in, unnecessarily, but nonetheless raising some sort of alarm about AI leading to human extinction, I put a lot of thought into thinking, what's going to happen for AI to wipe out humanity? And I think for AI to wipe out humanity in, say, the next 100 years is very difficult, and a sequence of multiple things probably has to happen. One would be if an AI system maybe misaligned, decides accidentally or deliberately to wipe us out, and that AI needs to have a mechanism like triggering global thermonuclear war or something to wipe us out. And there are all these other AIs that we're all working on that somehow have to fail to spot and stop this one bad AI from doing it. And it turns out that if you look at these catastrophic risks or these extinction risks, and say for AI to wipe us out within 100 years, which probably means needing to make planet Earth inhospitable to human life, right? Because, you know, there are pockets of people living everywhere. So how can AI make planet Earth inhospitable to human life? Maybe a thermonuclear war could do it. But what are the chances that an AI will actually decide to kill us off because we told it, hey, make money, be profitable, and it decides the best way to make money is to wipe out humanity, that seems very unlikely to me. I don't know, one in a hundred, say. What's the chance that it actually gains access to nuclear weapons and manages to trick people into firing them off or something? Again, a very low probability. What's the chance that all the good AIs we're working on will fail to spot this problem? Again, a very low chance. So I think if you multiply all of these probabilities of these very unlikely events, in my personal estimation, I felt like maybe there's a one in 10 million chance of extinction over the next 100 years. And maybe the fact that it's not zero is scary, but a one in 10 million chance of extinction over the next 100 years. If every 100 years with a one in 10 million chance of extinction, that means that this particular one cause will make us go extinct on an expected 1 billion years. And that seems far enough away that I don't see the urgency to pass potentially really bad regulation to stave off this, you know, billion year time scale kind of risk. But I feel like rather than being fearful of these very vague risks, I find that we think through concretely what could happen that's bad and what's the sequence of things that needs to happen to reach a really bad outcome. And what's the chance of each of these steps and sequence actually happening and if we estimate the probability of those in the calculations I've done, we wind up with frankly pretty low probabilities that makes me not worried about most of the catastrophic risks that people talk about. Well, thank you for walking us through that. And I also did really want to follow up on that important point you mentioned about the balance so that we regulate but not stifle innovation. And it's important 
to, that we understand you are not anti-regulation. You are pro-AI. You can be both at the same time. It is a false choice to suggest otherwise. And, you know, that is something that I think is really unique as we hear from you and, and why we're so fortunate that our listeners get to learn from you as to how you speak both sides and mean it. For instance, one quote you've had, you've illustrated that you think a way to make sure we don't stifle innovation is making sure we support open source software. And whether it's that innovation or others, we'd love to hear more from you on, on what that balance looks like. But I also would love for you to elaborate more on your support for open source AI systems, because a lot of people find that they are a source of tremendous risk, cybersecurity threats, nefarious acts by the broader population who have more access to these tools through generative AI. So I'm curious, how do you respond to this concern and, and why have you been such a strong advocate for open source AI systems? A lot of technology is built on top of open source. If you use a smartphone, if you use a computer, you know, you are running open source software because someone chose to put a lot of work to write software publish it for others to build on and use, and this is running in all of our smartphones and all of our computers and all of the internet today. So historically, the generous contributors of open source has been a huge force in letting all of us build on each other's work and build all of these wonderful things that we use today. And one of the reasons I'm very concerned about regulation in the US and in the European Union especially is because of the amount of lobbying effort that has been making this argument that AI is dangerous, so put in place licensing requirements or whatever that will make it really difficult to open source AI software. And at least some fraction of this, not all, but some fraction of this line of argument is coming from some of the larger companies with proprietary software stacks that would rather, frankly, not have to compete with open source. And it was interesting, you know, the Mozilla Foundation had a really thoughtful statement, and I was one of the people who signed it, but many others signed it, pointing out that open software is one of the ways to make software safe. Uh, we now know that open source software is among the most secure software because of the number of people looking at it, spotting security vulnerabilities, and fixing it. Proprietary software can be quite safe, but open source software can also be made very safe. And I feel like right now in the US, there's one other argument that I disagree with. But I know that there's some in the United States that sees the US ahead in generative AI. And there is a theory that if we could pass regulations or something to shut down open source, then it helps the US stay further ahead, you know, because then it's harder for all other nations to get access to AI technology. I think that theory is wrong. I think you're this is stifle global innovation, hurt. The U.S. healthcare system hurt, you know, Americans uh, to stifle innovation, but it's just so bad for the world. Yes, I would rather our adversaries not have access to advanced AI. I would hate to see an unjust war waged using open source or closed source AI. But if the price we need to pay is to stifle AI innovation, just to stop hundreds of other nations, including our allies, from getting access to it, that seems like too high a price to pay. And I feel like if we in the US can be generous with what we've done, let, let innovation flourish, I think the US would be better off and the whole world would be better off as well. And can you say more about the costs? So you're saying it's too high a price for us to pay. 
some would argue, well, first of all, they they want America to thrive. They, you know, America first. And, and second of all, any risk is not worth it if others are able to be bad actors, but also even competitive forces. So what are some of the costs you're referencing when you say it's too high a cost to cut others off from participating in this AI innovation? So maybe first, I think at this point, it's probably not practical from the software point of view. I think hardware may be a little bit different, but software spreads around the world so quickly. I don't think the US has the power anymore to cut others off from software innovation. I think hardware supply chains are different. So hardware export controls maybe could be effective, but even there, I think the question's there. And in terms of the price of pain, at the heart of it, I think I ask myself this, do we think we're better off with more or less intelligence in the world? Previously, most intelligence was human intelligence, but now we have this other form of intelligence, this is artificial intelligence. And I think of intelligence as the power to use skills and knowledge to make better decisions. Uh, decisions, all sorts of things, like ranging from, do I step on the brake on the car now to prevent or to ameliorate a car crash, to do I make this recommendation to a patient or not? To what do I say to a confused student? All of these are decisions that maybe a doctor or human tutor can make, or that maybe now or in the future, an AI system could make. And I think we are better off with more intelligence and better decision-making capabilities all around the world. And yes, intelligence can be used for nefarious purposes, but a lot of civilization, human civilization, has progress due to people having better food, becoming better educated. You know, we as a civilization got smarter and with more intelligence, civilization advanced. And yes, some people use their intelligence to build weapons, but I don't think this is a reason to try to deprive other nations of education or to, you know, I don't know, starve their children so they don't grow up to be as smart. We just don't think that way. And I think that if we can have more intelligence in the world, we will be so much better off than if we have less intelligence in the world, be it human intelligence or artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that's the price we will pay if regulation succeeds in stifling AI. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. That is, it's really helpful to think of it in terms of just basic intelligence and, and reminding ourselves that disconnect and the distinction um, between artificial intelligence and actual intelligence and thinking through some of the costs. And before we leave this point of discussion, You've also said the hype itself around AI risks is causing real harm. And we've talked about some of the harm that you've seen on the regulatory front and, and some of the proposed bills that you think are really misinformed based on that hype. I'm curious if there are other real harms that you're seeing based on the hype or misunderstanding about what AI is or could be. Yeah, so I think the unnecessary fear about AI is leading to two concrete problems. One is I'm seeing high school students discouraged from entering AI because they heard AI could lead to human extinction and they don't want to contribute to that. And while I applaud them for not wanting to contribute to human extinction, I don't think that's actually a thing, at least not in the context of AI. I think it's tragic that, that these messages discouraging high school students from entering an exciting field that could be good for them and good for society. And then also, this is so distracting for governments. I feel like, you know, Congress, the White House, lots of really smart people, but realistically, our legislative and executive leaders only have a certain amount of bandwidth. And the time that our legislators are spent 
trying to stop human extinction, it's time that they're not spending thinking through current problems that AI may be already causing and trying to protect citizens from that. So I think it's actually very convenient, you know, to a lot of, let's say, social media companies, it's awfully convenient to have regulators worrying about human extinction in a in hundred years or whatever, rather than thinking about, do we want more transparency in social media? Can we figure out what's actually going on in that information ecosystem? Oh, this is why I think also the proposed partner uh, uh, regulation, Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, not sure how much progress that's making, but I think some of the proposed regulations to demand more transparency from social media, and I think this should be expanded to, to generative AI companies, for example, I think those would be welcome so they can actually get the signals rather than have to wait for luck or a whistleblower to tell us if something goes wrong. Um, and I feel like those are the things regulators should be focusing on. Well, thank you for that concrete policy proposal and, and also for sharing with us what you're hearing high school students have been saying about their decision to cut themselves off from participating in this innovation. And something that I know that you and I have talked about is the, the general population who, who's hearing similar messages and their fear about AI not understanding it and most of all, replacing them in whatever way, professionally, personally, and it seems that it's a similar thread, that this fear is keeping people from participating in AI use and AI development, but those are the very people, those high school students and those who are fearing displacement, those are the people we need participating in AI creation to make sure that it's better and that their voice is represented. Yeah. In fact, you know, you and I chat about disparity across the nation as well in terms of participation. Here in Silicon Valley, I'm seeing some high schools, you know, have talks on AI to the students, to the parents, whereas, and, and I know that in many parts of the country, e even in Washington, D.C., right, that level of access to AI just isn't there. And on one hand, a lot of tech is a very democratizing force. You know, no matter how much money you make, you can't get that much better an iPhone than someone else. But on the other hand, I think there's also work to be done ahead of us on the training and education front to make sure that society writ large learns about and is able to use these tools. And I think it's important because generative AI, AI as a general purpose technology, is making me, is making many people more productive in our work and our day-to-day -day lives. But I want to make sure everyone you know, gets the training to use it, not just a subset of the, of the population. Yeah, and, and thinking about the regionality, I know we've also discussed in the past even how our own kids' exposure is so different. You know, as I mentioned in our schools, it's, it's not taught really until high school. It is not a conversation in an organized way amongst parents. Obviously in Silicon Valley, your experience has been a little different. Yes, you know, I had a friend visit Silicon Valley and he was hanging out with us for about a week. Then, then he went home to his own hometown and he texted me afterward. He said, hey, Andrew, I'm sitting in a coffee shop in my hometown. And no one's talking about AI. That's so weird. <laughs> and, and, and there's that Silicon Valley bubble thing. But yeah. 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 And, and I and appreciate your work and your invitation to others. We need those outside of Silicon Valley participating just as much as that bubble that is so important in its creation currently. In fact, one, one thing that you and I have chatted about is the implications of this on democracy. Um, and I know civics, you know, 
people don't like it. Maybe I, I think it's important, but people for some reason don't don't like the concept. But when social media came up, you know, and, and schools have changed to teach students how to think about social media and media, multi-sourcing information, don't trust one thing, read a few things and form your own opinion. So we just teach children, teach students that to try to have our population, have the citizens understand how to think about the media and be well-informed voters so they can vote you know, in the nation's interest. And I think AI is so transformative. I think that for citizens to cast votes in a thoughtful way and participate in a democracy in a thoughtful way, it feels like just like the printing press or TV or radio or social media changed the nature of democracy. I think AI is changing it again. And if there's a huge disparity in understanding AI and how citizenship or should not engage with government in light of this new technological reality, that feels like it might offer challenges to democracy as well. Absolutely. And if only some people are participating in it, if only some people feel versed and comfortable in the AI space, that will lead to not only economic disparities that we're more familiar with, but as you say, the, the democratic implications of who is leading in this field that is going to be so important to our foundations, our economy, our work, our workforce. So we need to make sure that as you say, not just digital literacy that uh, some of us have been talking about for a long time, but AI literacy and really redefining what it means to be AI literate and then making sure that across the board, all of our students, all of our next generation is AI literate, understanding the critical thinking, understanding how and when to use AI and understanding it's not the tool to answer everything. You know, if, if you use it to cheat on all your tests, what are the ramifications of that? And first of all, it may be getting bad grades because you may be getting some wrong answers that you're handing in. So being discerning, understanding there's a time and a place and putting that into the context of learning, of intelligence and how it transpires into democracy. Yeah. And just like today, hopefully with more and more people that understand, if you see something on, you know, social media, Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, should you trust it? Should you believe that politician actually said that thing? Or is this global situation is an accurate representation? And who's right or wrong in this just or unjust war, right? What, what should we trust? That's changed with social media and AI, which is much newer. If you're chatting online with a chatbot and there's a certain view on some war or alleged genocide or what a politician may or may not have said or the position of party, should you trust it? So I think all of these are things that will take time to sort out, but probably needs to be relatively quickly sorted out. Yes, we'll, we'll get to work on that so that it can be resolved sooner rather than later, given all that needs to happen quickly in this space. But, you know, turning to your work in supporting companies, I know with the AI Fund, your intent is to support extraordinary founders harnessing AI to make the world a better place. And that's a really interesting concept of the AI creation to empower and, and improve the world. And I'd love if you could share with us a few of the companies that you've chosen support that you think fulfill that mission. Yeah, so AI Fund's a venture studio, and we decided that because AI has so many different applications, I wanted to build AI Fund to partner with subject matter experts and founders to identify many of these opportunities and then to build businesses to execute to those opportunities. 
So today we have a company helping people with relationship mentoring, a meaning led by Renata Nyborg, with a company that is making ships about 10% more fuel efficient, uh, Bearing AI, uh, led by Dylan Kyle, and saving carbon emissions as well as fuel costs. With companies applying AI to education, to financial services, to really many other industry sectors. And I find it exciting because AI is the general purpose technology to partner with subject matter experts. And we actually often work with uh, large corporations as well, because large corporations often have insights to the industry sector that I know nothing about. Maybe one quick example. Mitsui is a major shareholder in a large global shipping line. And they came to me and they said, hey, Andrew, you should use AI to make ships more fuel efficient. And I feel like I'm just an AI person. What do I know about global maritime shipping? Um, and I would never have come up with this idea myself. But with my team's AI expertise and Mitsui's very deep maritime shipping expertise, we're able to shape up a vision for a company to use AI to help route ships, to get them there safely a long time and use about 10% less fuel. And we're fortunate to then have found a fantastic founder, Dylan Kyle, to lead it. And so today there are many hundreds of ships on the high seas being guided by Bearing AI. Oh, and I think, let's see, ships guided by Bearing AI have sailed, I think 75 million miles, which is sailing, the equivalent of sailing 3,000 times around the planet. So by working with a large corporation, it's actually one of our investors, a corporate venture capital, one of our investors, we wound up identifying this unique opportunity and doing something that I think is having a real impact. And we try to do that repeatedly at AI Fund with different partners. Awesome. And another way that you've had a tremendous impact is on the education front. So I know in, in 2011, you led the development of Stanford University's main MOOC, Massive Open Online Course platform, and, and taught an online course on machine learning that was offered to over 100,000 students. So in terms of, you know, obviously you're practicing what you preach in democratizing AI and its education. And I understand that that was what led to the development of Coursera, where you're the chairman and co-founder. Would love to learn more about how you chose this as a main focus for you to put so much of your time and energy. And what do you hope is the outcome that students and, and that others will glean from what you've offered with Coursera? I want anyone to really transform their life through learning. I think we're seeing many people, when you have access to the right education, you can transform your life, have better opportunities, more fun things to learn about and do. And digital technology lets us bring that worldwide. So you know, I think as you mentioned, Coursera has started with my machine learning course. And it is one of those overnight success things that took years with no one else paying attention to build. So when I was teaching full-time at Stanford, I found myself teaching the same class year after year, going to the same room, delivering pretty much the same lecture, even telling the same jokes. And I started to ask myself, why am I doing this? And realized that if we could create digital content, that that would be a more scalable way to serve a lot of learners, and that wound up being Coursera, as well as on the on-campus experience. If that lecture delivery is canned, then instructors can spend more time actually talking to students rather than lecturing at them. And I think to this day, in addition to serving as a chairman of the company, I still, AI is progressing so much, I find myself spending quite a lot of time still trying to teach courses on Coursera and through deeplane.ai. 
So recently we launched generative AI for everyone because I felt that AI is so important for so many people. If everyone, especially working professionals, especially knowledge workers, but really everyone can, you know, learn a little bit about it, then they'll be better able to see how it affects their own lives and use it to help themselves and their families and communities. Oh, and when I created that course on Coursera, Generative AI for Everyone, one of the demographics I had in mind as well was regulators, because I was hoping that if regulators were to take this, that that would also help convey a realistic view of what AI can and cannot do and what the real risks are to help different countries, you know, shape thoughtful regulation. And do you know if they've been signing up? I know uh, some have told me they have, but I, okay. I, I don't, I, but unless they tell me, you know, I don't, yeah. Well, and it's so exciting to think that you made this education, this Stanford education on this cutting edge technology available through this new medium to so many students and types of learners, wherever they are. And as much as you said, you've been rinsing and repeating your messages and even your jokes. I'm sure some of your messages today, in terms of the guidance, the advice you give students may look a little different than five, 10 years ago when you were talking to them about AI. And I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the advice you give your students today about their interest in building AI. Maybe a couple of things that have happened. Building an AI system used to be pretty hard. So if I wanted to build a system say to read restaurant reviews and decide this is a positive or negative review. That used to take a really good AI team, maybe six months to build something put in production. But because of new AI technology, uh, specifically generative AI or large language models like ChatGPT or BOD, there are a lot of projects used to take me and very good AI teams six months or so to build, that now hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people could build in maybe a few hours. And so this dramatic lowering of the bar means that we can all build and deploy many more AI systems much more rapidly and easily. And this is changing the workflow of how companies build things. And I think that one shift in my thinking is 10 years ago, I didn't think everyone should learn to code, you know, because it's just a lot of work, may not be useful for everyone. But increasingly, I feel like we should build an educational system where we teach every student to code because now, is so much easier to get in and the value to be able to write a little bit of code, process your own data, understand this is much higher than it ever was. So I think that's one shift. It's so much easier. I think a lot more people should be doing this than you know five or 10 years ago. And I think the other shift is with the growing impact that AI has, this concept of responsible AI has matured and it is incumbent on all of us to think about that in our work. And maybe not everything, you know, has a high risk of harm. I build a lot of AI applications like inspecting bits of metal in a factory, you know, and yes, if we make a mistake, there could be some problems, but really not that much could go wrong. So there are a lot of AI applications where responsible AI is not as critical, but if you're working on an application that affects people, you could demonstrate bias or discriminate against minority groups or even majority groups, I feel like, the AI world's fortunately become much more sophisticated. Well, somewhat more sophisticated. I'm not as sophisticated as we wish, but certainly better than we were a few years ago. And thinking through those issues, and I think getting the message out and the best practices out remains an important part of what we need to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the 
more people we have participating, the more people who can benefit from AI economically and, and technically. So cheers to that and to the many ways that you are democratizing AI by making this education available to hundreds of thousands of people. It's just amazing to wrap your head around. Translate to eco-AI as well. Things like the eco-AI checklist, you know, and just having guys, the whole corporate leaders and government leaders think this through. I think that's really impactful as well. Well, thank you so much. That is certainly our goal to have as much impact as we can quickly. <laughs> so thank you for those kind words. And I'm so sorry for this conversation to end, but I know we have to let you get back to work. So our one final question that is our new final question this year, where we are interested in being optimistic. And I know that you are somebody who is very optimistic about AI. So I'd love to know which forthcoming AI innovation are you most excited to see come to fruition? Yeah, so just to be clear, if AI stops innovating, if all we have is, you know, the current version of, say, GPT-4 or the open source models, we still have so much juice left in that lemon to figure out how to apply even existing technologies. But there are many innovations that are very exciting. I feel like text processing has been transformed by um, large language models, generative AI. I think image processing is also starting to transform. We'll see a lot of innovation this year. And I don't just mean image generation, but I mean image analysis for computers to see things and understand what's in the picture. And so one obvious one, I think this will have implications on self-driving cars or driver assistance systems, but really everywhere there's a camera, I think we can get computers to do more. I'm excited about agents, autonomous agents. So this is the idea that if you go to online chatbot, you could prompt it, give it an instruction, a response, give it an instruction, a response, which is great. It's very valuable. But the idea of autonomous agents is if you can give a piece of software high-level instruction, such as, please do competitive research for me for this company, or find a global survey of what different countries are doing on AI regulation. And then the autonomous agent comes up with his own plan, what web searches it has to do, what, what to look at, and it goes and executes that plan browses web pages, then comes and says, you know what, now I need to replan my own research. It just does that for, you know, tens of minutes or tens of minutes or even hours. And after this software working for you for hours, it then comes back, having planned out the research, executed the research, and then comes back with a, with a very detailed, thoughtful thing. So this agents is a concept of AI systems, uh, usually based on generative AI and large language models. They can plan out and execute complex sequence of actions. And this one of the things is not really working that well. They're cool demos, but only a few actual implementations. But I'm excited about a lot of progress there. Yeah. Oh, and then maybe just one last one. I think Edge AI. Right now, we see a lot of AI run in the cloud with big data centers. But I find that I run a chat AI system, large language model, on my laptop pretty much every day. The proprietary stuff that I don't want to send in the cloud. I actually run it on my laptop. And I think there's a lot of opportunities, you know, privacy preserving, you know, cheaper works even offline to run a lot more really powerful, more powerful than people think applications on their own devices, or on their own laptop, or smartphone, or industrial PC. And so lots going on, lots, lots more innovations on the horizon. Lots going on. Can't wait to see them coming to fruition. Thank you for your work to bring so many of them to fruition and for sharing the education with so many of us, offering it up so that we all can join you in this revolution. Thank you, Maria. You're always very kind. It's always fun to chat to you about this. Thanks, Andrew. 
Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 